BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, bringing the world's top experts right to you. Introducing your hosts... Matt Bodner and Austin Fable. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. If you don't find some of your beliefs challenged by this episode, you weren't listening hard enough. Our guest, Dr. Michael Shermer, defends Holocaust deniers, debunks anti-vaxxers, and much more in a sweeping conversation that hits at the heart of some of the most controversial and polarizing issues of our time. How do we search for truth in a world full of noise? How do we uphold free speech and freedom of inquiry during that quest? How do we wrestle with some of the biggest and toughest issues we face as a society today? We talk about all that and much more in this interview with Michael. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we brought back author Charles Duhigg to share the secrets and the science of building better habits. Be sure to check out that episode. Now for our interview with Michael. Dr. Michael Shermer is an author, the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, a monthly columnist for Scientific American, a regular contributor to Time.com, and a presidential fellow at Chapman University. His new book is Giving the Devil His Due, a defense of free speech and open inquiry in politics, culture, and science. He's also the author of The Believing Brain, From Ghosts and Gods to Politics and Conspiracies, and many other works. 
His two TED Talks, seen by millions, were voted in the top 100 of more than 1,000 TED Talks, and he's been featured on media outlets around the globe. Michael, welcome to the Science of Success. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, we're very excited to have you on here today. And some of the themes and ideas you talk about in your new book, I think, are really important. And you, you open the book with a question, which I, I, I want to start with now, which is, who is the devil and what does his do? <laughs> right. Yeah. So giving the devil his due comes from that play and movie, The a Man for All Seasons, in which the argument is made that, uh, you know, we have to censor speech and control people's lives and have to change the laws for that. And then the rebuttal is, yeah, but what happens when you're the person who's being challenged and and the laws are all cut down that would normally protect you. Now you're in the minority position and you have no defense. So we have to give the devil his due for our own safety's sake. So the devil is whoever you disagree with, whoever is you're, you're in opposition to, whatever it is, politically, religiously, whatever your ideology or beliefs are. And it's kind of counterintuitive historically. You know, it, it, the, the force of big agencies and governments and institutions to silence people has always been there. It's just natural to want to keep power, get into power, keep power and squelch anybody who challenges you. And in a modern society, that's largely done through rhetoric, through language, through speeches, through protests. And it's natural for governments to want to do that. So the founders of the country, you know, outlined exactly why you have to have a free press and the freedom to uh, assemble and protest and uh, free speech for individuals to say whatever they want. It's the uh, it's the only thing to the fact that they even had to write it down tells you that that's not natural. And uh, even today, you know, the so-called cancel culture, you know, it's just natural for people to want to silence those who are not going along with what you think is the, the right program to institute better race relations or gender relations or a more uh, just and fair society and and so on. And and uh, so we have to kind of remind ourselves of this all the time. So the book, it's a collection of essays uh, over the years, mainly focused on the those and related themes. And then I gave some examples of, of why this is important. And, and, you know, like, for example, I, I even defended uh, David Irving, the famous Holocaust uh, denier, who uh, I'd written a whole book about Holocaust denial called Denying History. And so I knew him and uh, had interviewed him for the book. And, you know, I pretty much debunked all of his claims. So I think he has really nothing useful to say that has any semblance of reality when it comes to the Holocaust, right? And yet, you know, when he showed up in Austria to give a speech, he was arrested at the airport. You know, his passport was flagged. So when they scan the passport, they just pull you aside and the the police come and and that that was it. Next thing you know, he he's in jail. He has a trial. He's convicted. And so I wrote a letter to the judge saying, "Hey, you know what? I just I don't agree with this guy, but um, I I put the principle of free speech and above that even it's even more foundational than anything else. And that you know essentially he was arrested for a thought crime. He hadn't even spoken yet. He was just thinking about giving a speech and he got arrested." That's that's pretty draconian. And the fact is, for your listeners who are not familiar with this, Holocaust denial is illegal in quite a few countries in Europe, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, even in Canada, 
where hate speech laws are are pretty strict. And so denying the Holocaust is under that rubric that it, it could incite violence against Jewish people. Therefore, it's hate speech. Therefore, it should be censored. And and we don't go along with that, at least legally in the United States, and for good reason, because, you know, who's to decide what's Holocaust denial? I mean, if, you know, Irving says, well, it was only like one million Jews who died, not six million. Well, is that denial? A million's still a lot. What if he said it was 100,000? Where do you draw the line? What if one historian says it was 5.1 million and another one says it's 6.2 million? That's roughly the range that you see in the historical literature. You know, is is the lower uh, estimate is that denial? Uh, what is that? Is it revisionism? And uh, or if, let's say there's a great debate in North American circles, uh, North American historians about how many Native Americans died after the European colonial movement began in the uh, early 16th century. And it's a it's a debate because no one kept track of how many there were here, say, in 1500. It uh, could be, you know, 90 million, 70 million, 50 million, 10 million. You know, the numbers kind of bounce all over the place. And how many died of disease versus uh, guns and and swords? And, you know, it's not clear. So, but let's say I think it was 10 million who died out of the 90 million. And therefore, it, it doesn't count quite the same as if it was, you know, 80 million out of the 90 million who died. Am I a denier for offering a different perspective? So you see where I'm going with this, that the problem, once you set up that system to censor people that are out of the mainstream, where do you draw the line? And who? Who's going to decide this? Are you going to have something like a thought police system, a language police, somebody who monitors this stuff in the government or, uh, or anything like that? So that's kind of the focus. Well, we're jumping right into the meat of it. I, uh, I figured we would probably talk a little bit about David Irving and, and Holocaust denial. And, and I have actually some questions around some other perspectives you have on that. But you bring up a really interesting point, which is this idea of if that kind of speech is banned, then you can't really have an intelligent discussion or exploration trying to get to the truth of the matter, right? How many Native Americans were killed, right? If, if we can't ask some of those questions, then we can't ever really find out the truth about what happened and and how many actually died and it gets become a very slippery slope yeah exactly and and once you start censoring people then that becomes a cause celeb for them so like for example when there was a movement to censor them in the late 90s and early 2000s they kind of took that up as a as as a cause like ooh we must really be onto something cuz look what they're doing to silence us so send your donations right here to this PO box we are getting the attention of the censors right so it even backfires against you because it it, it leads them to be even more motivated and then bystanders who know nothing about it might look at from the outside in and go huh yeah, why are they silencing these people? What are they saying that they don't want me to hear? You know, so you get the band in Boston effect, you know, and uh, what, what do you mean my that book is banned? In that case, I really want to read that book if they're telling me I shouldn't read that book. <laughs> so my approach is just the opposite. You know, just let them have their say, say whatever they want, publish all their newsletters, write all the books that they want, let everybody have their say. And that's how I approached it. In that particular case, I said, just send me a list of the things that you think are most problematic about the traditional story of how the Holocaust unfolded and why and so forth. And they did. They sent me this list of like the 39 unanswered questions about the Holocaust. So Alex Groban and I co-authored this book, Denying History. We just went through the list 
And, you know, we went to Holocaust historians. We went to all the death camps in Europe, all six of them. We went to Yad Vashem and the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. We went through the archives and, you know, we just kind of knocked them down one by one. And, and we published published all that first in Skeptic Magazine in a short version and then the much longer version in a book and say, here's how we know. Here's what they say. And here's how we know they're wrong. Boom. End of story. And then you decide. And no one's silencing anybody. And to me, that's the best approach because then eventually they'll just go away because it's clear they, they don't have a good argument. And we do this with everything, you know, creationists. What are their, their best what are their best arguments about the theory of evolution? And in both of these cases, I I noticed observing debates in which, say, a professional biologist would debate a creationist like Dwayne Gish. And they did terrible because they thought if I just walk in there with knowing a lot about evolutionary biology, I'll have no problem. Well, the debate isn't about evolution. It really isn't. It's about their particular talking points and you know religion and science and kind of meta issues. And if you're not prepared for that or their particular strategies of like tiny little minutiae, you know, like how do you explain the evolutionary origins of this particular organ in this in this animal? And if you if you're not at the ready, if you don't know that particular one, then you just go, well, I, I don't know. And then then he you look like an idiot, and and the and, the, and that per, other person looks like they got you. And the Holocaust deniers they do the same thing, you know, like why does the door on the gas chamber at Madhausen not lock? Come on. What's the story with that? If you're going to gas people in a gas chamber, you got to lock the door, you know. And so we, Alex and I, we went there. We went to Madhausen. We went to the gas chamber. And sure enough, the door doesn't lock. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of weird. So what's the deal with that? And so we had a little guide with us, and she didn't know. And then we got the, the her boss, and he didn't know. And then we got the next guy up, and he didn't know. And then all of a sudden, I'm on the phone with the the vice president, whatever he was, the, the head of the Department of All Parks and Recreation and Memorials throughout all of Austria, you know, like the top guy. And he's like, what's this about the door not locking? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, what's the story with that? Why do you want to know? I'm like, well, we're historians. We're here to, you know, debunk the Holocaust deniers, just so he understood we were not there to cause trouble. And he's like, oh, I see. All right. So. And he didn't know because I have to look it up. And so finally, it took, it took me like two years to get the answer to that question, which was that it, that door that was, was put on there after the war, because the original door was the gas chamber was dismantled and the parts were sent to different museums around Europe. And I forget where it is now. It's in Hungary or something in some museum. I was like, oh, all right. So, I mean, nobody seemed to know that. It took me a long time to find that out. Now, this is unimportant in the big picture, really. It's it's kind of a tactic that deniers use. Like, you know, if you can't explain the door, then there was no Holocaust. You know, they have a whole chain of reasoning about that. David Irving, Irving famously said during his trial in England, no holes, no Holocaust. It was like almost a T-shirt slogan. And people were baffled by this. What the heck is he talking about? No holes, no Holocaust. Well, it was focused on uh, Auschwitz and Auschwitz II, Birkenau, had four big gas chambers and crematoria and the design of these things was there was the the it was a subterranean gas chamber so that the ss guards got on top of the roof which is only like three feet above the ground and then they pour these zyklon b pellets through these holes in the roof and so irving had this whole thing well if you go there you'll see there's no holes in the roof and I'm like, huh, yeah, that's weird. So we went there, and sure enough, there's no holes in the roof because there's no roof. The Nazis dynamited the whole place. It's just rubble. So it's like, oh, okay. So, you know, it, that was an easy one to debunk. But it's like that's the kind of strategy that if, you know, you don't rebut it, then 
either people that know something about it are baffled or the out at worst, it's, you know, outsiders just looking in going, huh, yeah, what's the deal with that? Why are there no whole, hey, I wonder if there is something about this Holocaust thing we've been bamboozled about. Maybe this Irving guy has something interesting to say. I should look into this more. Then you have our rebuttal. Oh, okay. So the Nazis dynamited the gas chamber. I see. Okay, never mind. There's nothing to this Holocaust analogy. So again, just let have people have their say and rebut their speech with better speech. I think it's really important to to highlight the fact that you quite literally wrote a book refuting Holocaust deniers, and yet you still staunchly advocate for the David Irvings of the world to be able to share their opinions. And correct me if if I'm misunderstanding this, but the reasoning is basically that by letting those opinions out, you can freely debunk them and let people realize, hey, this is completely ridiculous and it's totally disproven. And by bottling them up or trying to, as as you later call it in the book, ban evil, you actually start to let some of those things ferment and you rob people of the ability to have the discourse around what those issues are and why those things are or aren't the case. Yes, and and this this backfire effect, as I call it, is particularly prominent in college campuses now with the whole censorship and safe spaces, microaggressions, things you can and cannot say. You know, it's political correctness from the 80s and 90s just run amok. And this is mainly related to race and gender issues. People that are not in the academy, you know, they, they, they're kind of watching this <laughs> clips on Fox News pretty much every night about campus craziness. And, you know, they think, huh, yeah, what's the story with that? What, what's the deal? Why can't we talk about gender? Why can't we talk about these race issues? You know, and on campuses, you know, everybody knows there's certain things you just cannot talk about. There's a lot of self-censorship. This is a big concern that a lot of us have. And But that aside, the, you know, the, the, the backfire effect is that people, of all places, <laughs> the academy, universities and colleges, people are thinking, well, what's going on over there? Why should we, why should I send my kid to some college that costs 50,000 bucks a year? And uh, they're not even allowed to talk about important issues. I mean, what, you know, come on, there's not one right answer. So, and just to you know, kind of give one more fundamental principle here underlying all this is that no one's omniscient. No one has the answers for sure. There's no 100% certainty on any issue. So the only way to find out the kind of approach to truth or get closer to truth is to talk about it. And we only have our thoughts that are locked in our heads. And the only way to get those thoughts out is, uh, you know, by pen or speech. And so we have to protect people to put that out there, even if it means defending the David Irvings or let's say Jared Taylor or any of the, you know, kind of modern neo-Nazi or, or white supremacists, let them have their say and just show well, well, why is it that they're wrong? I mean, if somebody says, well, you know, blacks are uh, score lower on IQ tests than whites and whites score lower than Asians. OK, well, why is that? Well, it's obvious. It's just pure culture, 100% culture. The tests are biased. Well, yes, that's one hypothesis. And there is some evidence for that. But there's other arguments that are made, of which you're not even really allowed to talk about <laughs> on college campuses. And and, it, and that only makes people think, huh, yeah, I bet there is something else. And that's why they don't want to let us talk about it. So instead, I said, yeah, go ahead. You know, let the like Charles Murray wrote that famous book, The Bell Curve, in which he talks about these genetic inherited differences, along with cultural differences. And, you know, he was, you know, roundly criticized for that. And well, to me, you know, let the Charles Murrays of the world have their say, and then just explain exactly why that argument is wrong. I want to know what what's the counter argument to that or the climate deniers, you know, well, well, what is the, how do we know that climate global warming is real and human caused? How do you know that? This guy says it isn't. So what's the story? I want to know. 
<laughs> where can I read about this? Well, this issue in particular, we, we're all over that. We have a, a couple of really classic articles at skeptic.com. If you just Google, go there and, and just search under global warming, you'll see these, how we know global warming is real and why it's human caused. Here are the 25 arguments, the 15 arguments. Here's, and here's what the skeptics say, and here's why they're wrong. Boom, boom, boom. You know, it's because people really do want to know that. And, and again, no one knows for sure. I mean, climate science is a technical science. How do I know? What do I know? I'm not a climate scientist. You know, I just see stuff on CNN. I see stuff on Fox News. I read the Wall Street Journal. I read the New York Times. I don't know what to think that one person says this, the other person says that, they don't agree with each other. How, how am I supposed to adjudicate this as an outsider? So you gotta let people have their say and, and, and that's giving the devil his due. And this really dovetails into the broader importance of freedom of inquiry, right? And this idea that to me, and you, you touched on it a moment ago, there's, there's a really important humility in admitting that I don't know all the answers. And oftentimes, if we can't explore and truly have an open dialogue about why certain social or political issues are the way that they are, then we can't really get to the root cause and actually solve it. And when you start to criticize people for the questions they're asking, even if those questions are coming from a place of curiosity, humility, and, and desire to ultimately solve an issue, to me, that's when things start to get very dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of research in cognitive psychology about uh, people's, the, the sort of mismatch between people's ideas about what they know and what they actually know. And the latter is is usually far less than the former. So if you, if you ask somebody something simple, like, do you know how an internal combustion engine works? Or do you know how a zipper works? Or do you know how a toilet works? You know, people, Oh, yeah, of course. Explain it. Well, you know, the thing goes there and the thingy does that, you know, and they're dumbfounded, <laughs> right? So most of us think we understand something, you know, kind of visualize it in your head. And that's something simple. But if you say, you know, oh, I'm against NAFTA or, you know, I'm against our current immigration policies. Well, what is NAFTA? Well, you know, it's that North America, see, free trade. Yeah, I don't even know what countries are in that. Uh, you know, what? <laughs> you know, they're dumbfounded. You know, what is our current immigration policy? You know, what percentage of U.S. GDP is allocated or the federal government budget is allocated for foreign aid and support? Oh, it's like 10 percent. You know, no, it's like you know, less than one percent. You know, people have an idea of what they think is right and wrong about things or that they understand things, but they don't. So really, when they opine about issues like global warming or evolution or whatever, really what they're doing is just kind of socially signaling I trust the institutions of science. Therefore, I, I think global warming is real and human caused because that's what scientists are telling us. And I trust them or I don't trust big scientists. I don't like government agencies and big corporations and things like that. And therefore, I don't trust them. And therefore, I doubt it. Vaccines or climate change or whatever. So, But if you ask people, well, you know, how do you, what is the science behind climate science? What do you know about vaccines? You know, again, people are largely dumbfounded on both the left and the right. You know, So liberals who say, yeah, I fully accept global warming is real and human caused. Studies show that in general, they have no more, very little knowledge more than conservatives who doubt it. In other words, no one really understands climate science and the general public. I mean, we just have this kind of general understanding like, yeah, I know how an internal combustion engine works, or I think I know how a zipper works, but I really don't. <laughs> In a way, I'm just saying, yeah, I trust the government to 
give us sound advice on vaccines, so I'm, I'm going to go get vaccinated. Or I don't trust the government, or I don't trust big pharma, you know, and, and so, so it's really kind of a proxy for something else that's a deeper foundational principle in their worldview of trusting or not trusting government or corporations. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Dot edu slash podcast. That's a really fascinating insight. And something that I wrestle with, which you, which you just touched on, is this idea that the reality is most people in the general public don't understand most of the fundamentals, the data, the science, the things that underpin anti-vaccine, climate change, all of these different ideas. How do you think about, and the, the COVID response over the last 18 months has been a really interesting catalyst to explode a lot of these issues. But how do you think about the flip side of the coin in terms of the Holocaust deniers or the anti-vaxxers or whoever, the anti-maskers, all these kinds of people? How do you think about the idea that the denial in and of itself can be dangerous in a world where people don't understand most of the issues? Yes, and the COVID one is certainly interesting. Well, in the early days, of course, no one knew much of anything. So we were kind of groping for what the right thing to do was. You know, the masks, no masks than masks and social isolation, close down the economy, you know, businesses and so on. And, and now we're kind of approaching that again with the Delta variant. What's the right thing to do? I'm pretty sure we're not going to shut down the economy again. Business, business will stay open and we'll just have to be careful about being masked and and so on and, and and that would be far less concerning if everybody was vaccinated that can get vaccinated again there's a small percentage of people that can't get vaccinated for medical reasons if their age or immunocompromised or they're very young children and therefore the argument that people surrounding them who cannot be vaccinated should be vaccinated so that the disease doesn't spread. That's the argument. But we're not near that. I mean, we're like 70% now. It really needs to be like 80 to 90% to, for her, herd immunity. And even that may change because of the COVID variant. And so at the moment, as we're speaking here on August 4th, 99.99% of the people being hospitalized or dying from COVID, uh, from the Delta variant, are unvaccinated. So, uh, and it's not that the vaccinated can't get COVID, the Delta variant, they can, but the viral load will be so low, it won't cause them to have to be hospitalized or to die, and they're less likely to spread it. Well, this is not changing it by the day, but slightly less likely to spread it because they have a lower viral load to, you know, sneeze or cough or whatever, get it out there. And anyway, so that's the argument, And but what you usually hear with it 
vaccine hesitancy people is, well, what about the side effects of the vaccine? You know, I, and I have to say this, <laughs> I went through this recently with one of my own employees. I found out was not vaccinated. So, well, why? Well, because, I, you know, I heard about this guy that got a seizure. You know, probably think she was talking about anaphylactic shock and or another person that, you know, died or somebody who had a blood clot or whatever. Well, if you look at the CDC, you know, they say, well, yes, this is you know no vaccine. And, and more generally, no medical procedure of any kind ever is 100% effective and has zero side effects. You know, so it's a risk-benefit analysis you have to make. And this vaccine happens to be the best vaccine ever invented, ever. It's incredible, the form of technology that's not injecting your body with a, a portion of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. You're not getting any of the virus. You know, it's, it's a genetically modified system. And and yet, nevertheless, there's some slight side effects. So with the anaphylactic shock, for example, when you get your vaccine, they have you sit there for 15 minutes. You would know within 10 minutes if you're having a reaction or not. And, and I had, when I got mine, I, I had, they asked me if I've ever had that. I said, yes, I had a bee sting like five years ago when I was out on a bike ride and you know, I swelled up and, you know, I, I practically blacked out. It was, you know, it was, you know, a concern. My wife had to take me to the ER and so on. And they're like, okay, well, you just sit here for half an hour just to make sure. I say, okay. And I had no reaction. Okay. So in, in other words, we even the side effects, we know about them and, and we can deal with them. And so, but even, even with that, compare that to the 600,000 dead. What about the person that was on the, uh, on the news last night, two nights ago, 31-year-old guy has a, a wife and a six-year-old son. He's in the hospital dying from COVID. I, I, I think he may pull out, but you know, he could barely breathe, barely talk. And, and while he was talking, he said, I didn't get vaccinated because we're a strong conservative family. It's like, oh my God. You know, this is the kind of thing that's what I'm talking about with proxy truths. You know, it's it's a stand-in for something else. I'm not getting vaccinated because why? Well, because this is conservatives don't do that. What? You know, I mean, where are you getting this? First of all, every one of the Fox News hosts are all vaccinated. You know, they're all socially isolated. You know, they live in gated communities. The kids go to private schools. I mean, come on. It's like that's not a conservative value, but that's the impression people are getting. Anyway, it's just how to combat it's really hard in, in this particular case. I had no effect at all, you know, just going through all the analogies. You know, you have a greater chance of being struck by lightning than having an anaphylactic shock. Uh, you know, the numbers are roughly the same probability. And, and, and yet, uh, over last year, 38,650 people died on uh, in automobile accidents in America. 38,680. And no one has any driving hesitancy. People just get in the car and just drive around. They, they text. They check emails. They read the paper. They put their makeup on. They eat sandwiches, you know. All this without a second thought, right? But it's like, ooh, the vaccine, oh dear, you know, it's, it's like I'm, I'm concerned about that 0.00001% side effects, uh, you know, compared to the 600,000 dead. And so our, the thinking is not clear on that. And there's now been quite a bit of research on this. You know, well, why is that? Why, why is a vaccine, say, different from car risks? And, uh, you know, it's, it has to do with to, to what extent you have control over what you're doing. You know, and the vaccine, as well as the virus, is invisible. You can't see it. They just stick it in your body and you just hope for the best. It feels like voodoo or witchcraft or it feels something paranormal, supernatural, spooky, evil. And, you know, that goes back to the 19th century original anti-vaxxers. You know, when the vaccines were really were until recently just a, a piece of the actual virus that causes you sick and it may 
she's slightly ill and then your body builds up immunity so that when you get the real disease it can fight it off that was kind of an overly simplified argument for vaccines but this vaccine, so you understand why people might go ooh, you inject me with some of that bad stuff it, it, it'd be almost like saying well here's a little nuclear radiation now so that when the when the nuclear plant nearby melts down you'll be protected from that you know no one's going to go for that it's like i don't want to get a little bit of nuclear radiation it probably has something to do with that and lack of control uh and and uh, you know and shaming people like you know don't you don't you feel a sense of moral obligation to protect your family kind of a common response to that 31 year old man isn't the conservative family values thing to do is to to protect your family and yourself from dying and but but studies show that shaming people like that makes it even worse they're even less likely to get vaccinated so i really don't know what to do other than here's the facts i you know just please think about it just sit on it for a day and just think about it and yet still i think of the let's see, 30% of people who have not gotten vaccinated yet in America, it's like, I think it was 80% of those said they will never get vaccinated under any conditions, no matter what the evidence is. And, you know, short of a legal just mandate where you have to do it, uh, I don't know what's going to convince them. So, I mean, I'm I'm a huge believer in, in freedom of inquiry. And to me, that's one piece that I just think about the the damaging side effects of the other side of the coin which is the people who are spreading the message of anti-vaxxing for example or holocaust denial or any of these things in in the covid case i mean they're causing real social harm potentially how do you think about reconciling that with the the fundamental importance of ensuring that we have freedom of inquiry and debate and and free speech yeah, well, in that particular issue, again, I just say let everybody have their say. You know, you think it, that hydro- hydroxychloroquine is going to be uh, a curative for COVID nineteen? By all means, but you know, <laughs> write a blog about it, post about it on Twitter, and you know, ha- have a, a podcast about it. And or Iver, what's the new one? Iver Vectin, I think it is. I keep stumbling on that word, but uh, that Brett Weinstein was talking about on his podcast, you know, uh, and then YouTube's, oh, we're going to demonetize you because you you talked about that that drug that, that doesn't have any evidence for it or has only partial evidence that it could work against COVID-19. Well, come on, who, you know, it's, who is YouTube to decide? Who's making that decision about who can talk about what on their, on their own podcasts that, of course, are platformed on YouTube? So that's the problem. Just let everybody have their say. What's the story with with these drugs and and I'll decide. That's what I I think about that. Now the the related issue on on this to what you said was has, has to do with freedom. You know a lot of like countries like uh, America that are very freedom oriented like this. We'll just say the United States. People have a misunderstanding of what freedom means. They think well it means I could do whatever I want. No, that is not what it means. It doesn't mean that at all. You know, to live in a civil society and a rule of law with a constitution and norms and customs and regulations and so on, these things are there in place so that you are actually freer by not doing, by preventing you from doing certain things. So my simple analogy is you're not free to drive on any lane of the highway that you like, left side of the road or the right side of the road. Hey, I should be free to drive on any side of the road I want. No, no, you're not. And and if you think that, then you're not going to get a driver's license. We will outlaw you, ban you from driving. And if you do it anyway, we'll lock you up. 
And that's to, to, to make everybody freer. So the standard libertarian line on this is freedom to swing my arm ends at your nose. And all libertarians understand that. They go, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. We've got to have rules. We're, we believe in the rule of law. Yeah, okay. Well, how about vaccines? Oh, accept that. <laughs> well, why? Shouldn't I be free from your germs? Like the smoking issue, uh, the reason we ban smoking in restaurants and airplanes and so forth is because, it, it, you know, it, there's some evidence for secondhand smoke, but it stinks. It makes my life lower quality and less pleasant when you smoke. So don't do it. Smoke in your own house. Stink up your own house or, or whatever. You know, you're free to do that. Or, you know, what, I should be free to ride my motorcycle without my helmet. Yeah, but... You know, when you crash and bust your head open and you don't die, then I got to pay for it through health care, through higher premiums and through taxes and so on. So it affects me. You know, you're at, you know, so these these unintended consequences of your allegedly free behavior any more than, you know, we don't allow the, the fossil burning, fossil fuel burning coal plant to just dump the waste down the river that, you know, that I get my water out of. You know, nobody thinks that's all right. No economist would say there should be no cost for that, even the most libertarian economists. So people get confused about this. You know, I should be free not to get vaccinated. Well, sort of, yeah, but then the, your kid can't go to school. You, you can't uh, work in a public job where you encounter people because these are uh, what are called collective action problems. You know, how do we solve problems that we all have to, uh, you know, do our share. That sounds like a collectivist, socialist, communist kind of thing, but it's not. It's what all civil societies, all of them, even the most democratic, libertarian, free, they all have restrictions for good reasons. And so I think the vaccine argument should be uh, construed in that context, too. I should be free from your germs and is to whatever extent we can through laws and regulations. How do you think about the other side of the coin, which is the, the the second piece of this, and you touched on it earlier as well, this idea that most people don't understand a lot of the fundamentals that underpin a lot of these big decisions, right? If I'm a member of the general public and I don't have the time, energy, inclination to research about whether or not I should get a vaccine or you know whether or not this race or gender issue is, is really important and kind of where it comes from. How do you think about how we can help provide those people with the tools, the, the abilities, the, the, the resources, et cetera, to form thoughtful opinions about things and sift through the deniers out there? Yeah, this is a hard one. And so, uh, you know, we have fact checking sites and, and the idea that media sources have fact checkers you know, all the fact-checking sites like PolitiFact and Snopes, uh, you know, these are good sources. Any major media institution usually has, you know, a, a deep base of editors that fact-check things. You know, you hope there's some, some most of the bad stuff gets filtered out, as opposed to some nobody's blog or podcast where there's no fact-checking at all. There's no editing. Uh, you know, so you should trust the former more than the latter, not that the latter, some lone person on a podcast can't come up with the right idea, you can't. But, you know, the, but most of us are ignorant of most things. And so if you're not engaged with other people that check you, in fact, check your own statements, then you're more likely to make errors. So that's the reason in science we have peer review. But that would be true for journalism as well. 
which sources? Well, and, and you know, we all know that you know the New York Times has a left wing bias and Wall Street Journal has a right wing bias. We know CNN, Fox News, quite different, even on the same issues. You can toggle back and forth. And you, you can't believe they're even talking about the same thing, that they're so different. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so there you, you know, you just have to you, you kind of do a little bit of heavy lifting yourself and just you know, read and decide. And it's another principle to remember is it's okay to change your mind. In fact, it's a virtue. When the facts change, you should change your mind if that's the right thing to do. There's no virtue in just saying, well, I'm going to believe X no matter what the evidence is, because that's what I said I believe. That's what politicians tend to do. They tend to say, well, I'm a liberal or I'm a conservative, so these are my you know, half dozen core beliefs. I will never change them because it, it's how I define myself. Well, then what do you do with new evidence that comes in that shows that one of those, say, six core beliefs is wrong? Do you change your mind or not? You know, a lot of people do, but a lot of people don't. They just say, well, I, I don't care what the evidence is. Okay, that's a problem. So to deal with that, you have to kind of do an end run around it and say, no, no, keep your political beliefs, your religious beliefs, whatever. And just on this one particular issue here, it's okay to change your mind. You know, don't you don't have to give anything up. So like, I was at this conference, Freedom Fest, last weekend, and one of the speakers was talking about, oh, he started telling this story about uh, when he was a journalist covering the AIDS crisis when it began in the late 80s and into the early 90s. And he was talking about the Journal of the American Medical Association published this article, uh, you know, research article showing that uh, the AIDS virus can be transmitted through just like swimming pool showers it, 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 it's it's you know in the in the air it's respiratory you can get it from just being on the same bus with with an aids victim and so on and of course we found out that was absolutely not true you know it's a blood transmission and you know a bodily fluid transmission through sex and so on and, and blood transfusions but but this guy the reason for telling the story is a the guy then pauses and says and guess who the author of that article was none other than anthony fauci and you know the whole room erupted in you know just laughter like ah that anthony fauci what an idiot he once believed that and now he doesn't yeah that's that's right new evidence came in that showed that study was wrong and anthony fauci said well that was wrong okay here's the news here's the new evidence and and so and so fast forward to 2020 you know anthony fauci says this fauci says that and you know you watch fox news like you see the guy's an idiot he doesn't know anything he's an ideologue he just keeps flip-flopping. He's a flip-flopper. Because in politics, that's a bad thing. But in science, and when, when it counts for reliable knowledge, flip-flopping is a good thing. You change your mind when the facts change. And we've seen that happen over and over and over in the last year and a half. Should we have masks or no masks? How far apart should we be or not? When should businesses open? What's the, what's the rate of spread at which a governor or a mayor or the president has to say, okay, we've reached a critical barrier here that usually has to do with to what extent local hospitals can handle the number of patients that are coming in. And here we are, first week of August, and we're starting to approach that here in LA County, for example. So yeah, that's normal, that's good. So you, you kind of have to pay attention to what's going on, which you would do anyway for other parts of your life. You know, the, the people that are vaccine hesitant, for example, they hold down jobs, they have families, they, they're able to you know, maintain a bank account and pay their bills. You know, they're, they're, they're rational people. You know, why are they irrational on this one particular issue? You know, it's baffling. And so a lot of us are trying to figure out how to deal with that. It's so interesting to me that this thread of, of free speech, freedom of inquiry, the quest for knowledge, the humbleness and humility to change your mind and try to rationally evaluate just what's true 
really has, in many senses, even just in the course of this conversation, already exposed some of the ideological and dogmatic thinking on polar opposite ends of the political spectrum. I find that to be really interesting. Yeah, totally. Well, so the fact that it is polarized politically tells us that these knowledge claims are not just empirical truths that we can get to through better data and analysis and reason, that that they, they stand in for something else, that something else being political truths or maybe religious truths or ideological truths or whatever. And if you don't understand that, then you're not going to understand why people are, are denying it or hesitant. Just think analogously about conspiracy theories, you know, just take QAnon. So my next big book is on conspiracies, conspiracy theories. So I open it talking about the uh, insurrection on January 6th. And here's these videos of these people walking around the Capitol Dome with their selfie photos. And, you know, it's like and the guy with the Confederate flag and the other guy with the, uh, you know, the Viking outfit, the so-called QAnon shaman. You know, so I just ask, what are these people thinking? What did they think they're going to do when they get in there? And I think most of them hadn't given it any thought at all. They're walking around taking selfies like they're on vacation. It was just stunning. And uh, so what if they had gotten into the chamber where Nancy Pelosi was, say, before they whisked her out? And Mike Pence, for that matter. And, uh, you know, what, what were they going to do? Would they have killed them? Maybe. And then what? You know, that what they take over the government? How's that going to happen? I mean, they cannot possibly have thought this through. And what is this all based on? It's, you know, the, the QAnon conspiracy theory about the rigged election in particular, and then the larger, you know, issue of the, you know, Democrats are running this secret satanic pedophile ring by Hillary Clinton and Tom Hanks and other uh, George Soros and other liberals that are, you know, conducting this nefarious evil plot, and we have to, you know, put a stop to this. And now, do people really believe that? Well, one guy did. His name was Welch, and uh, he went to the Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Washington D.C., where this cult was allegedly conducting its pedophile blood drinking ring in the basement. And he went there and, and barged in with his gun. He had an AR-15 assault rifle. And where's the basement? You know. There's no basement here. What are you talking about? And then he shot up the roof and I've come here to rescue the children. They're like, what? What are you talking about? And so he got arrested. He went to jail. Now he's like super sorry he did this idiotic thing. If you sat down Ted Cruz, somebody like this, do you really believe this? Or any just kind of rational thinking Republican who ticks the box on a survey, you know, do you think there's something to QAnon? Yeah, yeah, I think there's something to it. And and you walk them through the the, the, the scenario I just presented. You know, do you, do you actually believe there's a secret satanic cult of pedophiles led by Hillary Clinton in a pizzeria? You know, they, they would have to say, well, no, of course not. But so what are they saying when they say, I believe this? You know, I my theory is that it, it's a proxy for something else that I don't trust Democrats. I don't trust, you know, government agencies, especially run by uh, Democrats. You know, that Hillary, you know, she lied about other things. And that just Benghazi. Remember the Clintons back in the 90s with the white the white water scandal and the, and Vince Foster didn't wasn't he murdered by the Clintons and or, or Jeffrey Epstein you know uh, so this is where the pedophile thing comes you know Jeffrey Epstein famously like teenage girls underage teenage girls well these weren't children these weren't like six-year-olds these were like 15 year olds right so but th from there you can just go well yeah Clinton was on Jeffrey Epstein's jet in that island therefore the Clintons and they were underage girls so that's pedophilia therefore the Clintons are involved in a pedophile ring you know that that's kind of the logic of where they get to that and so even if you can say, well, there's Clinton was never convicted of murdering Vince Foster. He wasn't murdered. 
And uh, yeah, yeah, but I don't really trust those Clintons anyway, or I don't like those Democrats. You know, they're always everything they touch turns to rot. You know, it's just socialism, and we, you know, we're not going to have that in America. They want to, they want to destroy America. So the QAnon specific conspiracy theory, even if you debunk it, those people aren't going to go, oh, in that case, I, I think I'll vote for a Democrat next election round. No, they're never going to vote for a Democrat. They don't like Democrats for these other deeper reasons that you have to kind of explore to find out. So fascinating. And I want to pivot the conversation or, or zoom out a little bit and, and talk about the broader concept of scientific humanism or, or enlightened humanism and and how you think about really what that is and how we can approach the world in a more humble, curious, open-minded, and, and, and thoughtful way. Yeah, so this Enlightenment humanism or scientific humanism, the subtitle of my book is Reflections of the Scientific Humanist. Whatever you call it, I, I've kind of steered away from secular humanism as a phrase that's been around since the 1930s, largely emerged out of kind of far-left liberal thinking from the Roosevelt era in the 1930s and into the 1960s. And they've always kind of towed a far left political agenda. So, and, and, that, and that's not my perspective. I'm kind of a classical liberal or libertarian, whatever phrase you want to use. I'm not a conservative either. So I always was bothered by that. You know, if you're not pro-choice and you're not this and that on, on, on these 10 different political issues, you're not a humanist. I thought, oh, that's a big mistake. You know, when I got involved in there in the 1990s, uh, with the humanists, and then I just end up starting my own magazine, Skeptic Magazine. It's more science oriented, but but I always was bothered by you know, the kind of limiting the umbrella of who you're going to embrace and allow to be a humanist. So I like scientific humanists or uh, Enlightenment humanism because it's broader. Anybody should be interested in being part of that movement because it, it harkens back to the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution and the idea that we can achieve reliable knowledge. We can. We can have something like, or at least approach, objective knowledge. We can find truth. There are truths about the world. It's not all relative. It's not just pure cultural relativism, postmodern deconstructionism, and, or any of that. Those guys are wrong. You don't have to know anything about it to know that they're wrong, because if you just glance at any of their writings, they're just loaded with arguments. You know, and, and but but they're arguing to say that that evidence and arguing doesn't count for anything. Well, they just contradicted themselves. You know, why should I believe you and your argument that reason isn't sound? You just use reason to, to try to convince me that reason isn't sound. You've just contradicted yourself. And so the Enlightenment idea is that there is an empirical world. There is a reality. We can know it. Uh, not 100 percent, you know, we but we can approach it. We can get closer to the truth and that some systems are better than others. And then from there, you can expand out to not just empirical truths about science, but, uh, you know, politics, economics. You know, there some systems really are better than others. Would you rather live in North Korea or South Korea? East Germany versus West Germany during the Cold War. It's obvious. Everybody, pretty much everybody will say, Oh, yeah, of course, South Korea versus North Korea. Now, if you ask North Koreans, they're going to say North Korea because they know they'll be locked up and sent off to uh, prison if they don't say otherwise. Not that pollsters can even get in there to ask, but you know, we know that people want to be free. Would you rather be healthy or ill? Would you rather be alive or dead? Would you rather be enslaved or free? Would you rather be educated or ignorant? You know, everybody knows the answer to those questions. So from there, you have a foundation 
um, of, of a moral system that, uh, you know, human flourishing, individual human flourishing is our starting point. And democracies are better than autocracies and market economies, even regulated ones, are better than command control economies that put too many restrictions on uh, free trade and so on. And international free trade is better than economic nationalism. Like, so Trump, this you know, Trump is not a conservative. This is a foundational principle of all conservatism is free trade, international trade, you know, starting with Adam Smith and, and Trump saying, no, 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 economic nationalism. That, that's just mercantilism that Adam Smith debunked centuries ago. And these are tried and true principles we've discovered through science, through reason, through experiments, through just history. See, I think if history is a science. These are experiments. You know, tr- these Countries tried communism for almost a century and it failed. So let's not do that again. Or nationalism, you know, that led to First World War and the Second World War, you know, nationalism. Let's not do that again. That was a bad idea. You know, let's let's jettison that idea and do something else. And these are experiments. 50 different United States had 50 different state constitutions. They all have different laws and, and customs and norms about, let's say, gun control. Well, you can look at the outcomes and control for different variables. And so this is what social scientists do. You can say, well, look, this one leads to more gun violence. This one leads to less gun violence. Let's do the latter because we agree gun violence is not good. Now, that particular issue, again, is fraught because of these moral foundational principles that underlie it. I've met many conservatives and libertarians that say, I don't care how many people die of gun violence. It's roughly the same as automobiles, about 35,000 a year, suicide, accidental, and homicide. And uh, they say, I don't care if it was 350,000. I want my guns. Their freedom, Second Amendment, freedom to own guns trumps the kind of public health crisis of too many people dying from guns. Uh, Therefore, you have to do something else. You have to try to get on the same page with them. Don't you agree it would be better if fewer people died of guns? Well, yes, of course I agree with that. Or like with pro-lifers, I argue that abortion, the issue is not really about abortion. Because if you make it about abortion, they're not going to budge. But if you say, do you think it would be good if fewer women got pregnant that didn't want to have babies? Well, yes, because that would lead to fewer abortions, right? Because that's what an abortion is, the ending of an unwanted pregnancy. Okay, how can we do that? You know, look, here's some studies that show that women that are educated, women that have economic empowerment, women that have access to free or inexpensive birth control don't get pregnant as much, and therefore they have fewer abortions. You know, so instead of saying let's ban abortion or let's legalize abortion, just let's see what we can do working together, all of us, uh, to reduce the number of unwanted pregnancies. So there. My strategy is to do an end run around the moral issue because people aren't going to budge on that. They're too stuck, particularly if they've ever spoken out publicly about it. They're just not going to change their mind. Cognitive dissonance is too powerful. Very insightful. And the idea you've touched on a couple of times that I think is really important is this notion that a lot of times a stance on a particular public policy issue really is just a reflection of a much deeper moral underpinning that really in in some cases may have very little to actually do with the having logically rationally thought through the position and more to do with a core component of 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 someone's identity and and the corollary of that is this notion that we have to think about intellectually creative approaches that can as you said do an end run around that in some cases to try and get people to agree to social goods that may be in the benefit of everyone 
without getting tangled in a lot of the moral knots that that we can so easily get tangled in. Yeah, that's right. So for like creationists, for example, you know, well, who are they? Well, they tend to be mostly religious, Christian fundamentalists or evangelicals. All right, what is it that bothers them about the theory of evolution? Because most of them don't know anything about it. Most people don't know about evolutionary theory. They can't, they can't, the average Harvard undergraduate cannot explain how natural selection works, right? So it's 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 a separate issue, and it and and by the way, they they tend to think it, it more Lamarckian, like well, if the giraffe stretches its neck and then it passes on the longer neck to its offspring. No, that's not how it works, you know. So the average person can't even get it right. So that's not what's really going on. What's going on is they think, well, if I if I if I agree that evolution happened, that means I got to agree that there's, there's an older Earth. And but the Bible doesn't the Bible say seven days. Yeah, well, maybe they're ages. No, no, it says days, and it said God created the, you know, the, the sun and the moon, and then the and then the animals, and then the plants, and then the animals, and so on. The particular sequence. You know, I I feel like if I give that up, then I have to give up the next thing in the next book in the Bible, and then pretty soon I, I I'm not agreeing with anything that the Bible says, and therefore there's no moral foundation to my life or there's no moral foundation to America if we go down this road because, you know, don't those evolutionists, don't they, aren't they atheists? And and atheism is a bad thing because they don't believe in any right and wrong and they don't believe in morals and anybody should be able to do anything they want. They have all these crazy ideas about atheism and humanism and so on. And and, and so therefore, therefore they draw the line. They go, okay, I, then I, I can't accept the theory of evolution. So I just do an end run around that. I say, hey, well, look, you know, most religious people actually accept the theory of evolution. You know, a lot of Protestants, most Catholics now believe it since the Pope uh, issued that encyclical in 1996 saying it's OK to accept the theory of evolution. It's true. And it really did happen and has nothing to do with the soul. And this is what religion deals with. And and this is what we believe as Catholics. Uh, and, and, and you can accept the theory of evolution. Oh, boom. OK, good. That was a good move. Even though I don't believe in souls and in the afterlife and all that, you know, I, who cares? At least, the, you know, the head of the Catholic Church said it's OK to accept evolution. Well, now I would not give any evangelical fundamentalist a copy of Richard Dawkins' book, uh, like The Selfish Gene or The God Delusion or, or any of his books, because he's an atheist. He's the most prominent atheist in the world. So they're going to read that thinking, oh, well, this guy's an atheist. So, you know, what is he? I can't trust his judgment about evolution. So I'll give him Francis Collins' book, The Language of God. Francis Collins was the head of the Human Genome Project. He's now head of the National Institutes of Health. He's one of the greatest scientists of our age, and he's an evangelical Christian whose book talks about why he accepts Jesus as his savior. And the rest of the book is about how we know that evolution happened and how we know the theory is true. So there I'm kind of doing a, you know, red team, blue team sort of thing. Well, this guy on your team, your religious team, who is one of the smartest people in the world, one of the most accomplished scientists ever, he says the theory is true and it's okay to believe it. And you get to keep your belief in Jesus as your savior and so on. Oh, okay. Now they're far more open to the idea through that strategy. It's so fascinating. And lest we leave one part of the political spectrum or another unoffended by this conversation or or their beliefs unchallenged, which I think is really important that we're challenging. You should be challenging yourself constantly and updating your beliefs and, and being humble and, and intellectually curious, which is the whole point of this idea of free inquiry and, and, and free speech. I'm curious, coming all the way back to what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, how do you think that a lot of the challenges to free inquiry and free speech have have emerged out of our 
existent campus culture? And how do you think we should approach resolving that? Well, to steel man their side, you know, it goes back to the early civil rights movement and and then the women's rights movements that, you know, language matters. You know, what you call an African-American and what you call a woman, you know, matters. It's, it could be demeaning. Of course, you know, the N-word is the obvious example. But, you know, just calling just, just something simple like changing the, the Mrs. modifier for a married woman, you know, Miss or Mrs., you know, there's nothing like that for men. Why is that? Well, because, you know, historically men have had all the power, you know, the ownership and so on. There was no, it wasn't necessary to have that designation. So, you know, it was famously changed to Ms. MS. And, you know, there was a little bit of pushback, like, oh, these crazy feminists, you know. But then in time, we all got, you know, used to changing our, our language that way. No one today, hopefully, would use the N-word. Certainly no white should use the N-word. I wouldn't. And uh, I think that's okay. That's understandable. And language does matter. And those kinds of things over time can be tracked. You can you can kind of see in the history of literature, say the last century, approximately what decade a novel was written in, in say 1910s or 20s or 50s or 60s of the kind of language used to describe blacks and women and Jews and other minorities. It's like, wow, I mean, they're almost embarrassing to read now. It's kind of painful to read. Then you get this, these pushbacks. That, well, we shouldn't then have students read Mark Twain and Tom Sawyer and and all that because, you know, he uses the N-word. Well, okay, it's okay to read literature for what it was because that's the whole point. And in that case, Twain was pushing back against the racism of his own time and using the word purposely to kind of jar his readers into seeing, you know, how wrong this treatment of blacks was in the South, in the Mississippi, along the Mississippi and so on. Anyway, so, you know, I understand, you know, why political correctness took off in the first place. Then once you you go down that path, then you then you start policing speech. It's like, well, if this word is bad, what about that word? And how about this phrase and all these descriptions? And you end up with this laundry list of microaggressions that the University of California published a couple of years ago, distributed to all faculty and staff and, and students. These are the things that are triggering and racially or genderly sensitive, and you shouldn't use them. Like what? Well, like asking, where are you from? You know, if somebody has an accent, well, according to this list, this is a way of saying, so you're not really normal here. You don't belong here. Where are you from? As if everybody's going to take that as an insult or you know, cultural appropriation. Taco Tuesday, there was a big uh, row over that at Cal State Fullerton a few years ago, 2015, about white non-Hispanic students enjoying Mexican food. Well, if you've ever been to Southern California, you're not going to drive 10 feet without encountering Mexican food. It's one of the great cuisines of our time here. It's great. I love Mexican food. You know, how is that culturally appropriating? That's culture. All of culture is appropriating. But you can kind of see how you say something like dressing up in blackface is offensive to blacks. Yeah, I get that. Absolutely. Well, so dressing up as in a Mexican sombrero or dressing up in a Native American costume with feathers, is that the same as blackface? I think it's not the same as blackface, but you know, you can kind of see the reasoning, the chain of causal reasoning from one to the next. But the problem is then, you know, then then you go too far down the path and and then no one wants to say or do anything. They're afraid, well, gosh, this is gonna offend somebody somewhere. I better just keep my mouth shut. That's not good for, uh, well, for culture, for a civil society, for a free society. The whole point of free society is to be free to speak your mind. And even if you're offensive, you know, well, okay, then, uh, you know, but that's, okay, it's a slightly different 
distinguishing between government censorship and and then just the kind of customs or norms of silencing people you know they're you know we're not really free to say anything you want you know you, you're not going to tell your spouse or your best friend something horrible that you were just thought about them you know just that would just be being a jerk it'd just be offensive you know just keep your mouth shut you know from there you know we all silence ourselves for good reason it's better to live in a polite society where you don't say nasty things so we all do that anyway but what we're really talking about here is you know the silencing of people's opinions on ideas that matter immigration abortion foreign wars and and uh, you know racial issues gender issues you know said should, should trans women that is men that uh, male to female trans should they be allowed to compete in olympic sports well there was a big story in paper this morning about the weightlifter the, the trans uh, woman was a man weightlifter well she didn't she ended up uh, failing in her three attempts at, at getting this huge weight over her head so no big deal she didn't take anybody's medal away from them that was a woman that was not originally a man and and so on so it wasn't an issue but someday it's going to be an issue <laughs> you know when this has already happened in some track and field events where a trans woman who was a man uh you know just just out sprints these women they're just competing for second and third place they're either and the fourth place person isn't going to be on the podium because of that well here you have conflicting rights the rights of trans to be free to do what they want in society and the rights of women to not have to compete against men because of the physical difference so how do you resolve that conflicting rights issue you talk about it you have a national conversation you present all the arguments on both sides but unfortunately that's another one of those sensitive ones wherever i comment on on this on twitter i get just hammered just get a heap of hate on my shoulders for being you know a transphobe i'm not a transphobe and i won't put up with you calling me that i'm not and if you're not mature enough to recognize that conflicting rights happen all the time you know, the rights of the fetus to live, the right of the woman to choose her own reproductive strategies and, and choices and so on. That, that Those are conflicting rights. We have to make a decision. What's your best argument? You can't just say, well, that's just anti-woman to say you believe in the rights of the fetus. No, it's not. <laughs> it's pro-life. The pro-lifers have good arguments. I'm pro-choice, but I, I think my arguments are better than theirs. But they do have arguments. And if you can't talk about them, then you don't know what you're talking about. And so we've we've covered a, a a sweeping swath of of themes and topics here, which has been fascinating for somebody who's listened to this episode who wants to approach the world more thoughtfully, curiously, humbly, more in, in a more open minded way. What would be one action item or action step that you would give them to to put into practice some of the thinking tools and ideas that we've talked about today? Well, the best thing is try to understand where somebody's coming from. Just ask a lot of thoughtful questions. Don't be, don't, don't ask questions in a leading way, like you're trying to uh, catch them on something and then go, "Ah, ha, gotcha." No, just just curious. Like, well, why is it you believe that? Why are you why are you vaccine hesitant? What's what what's your concern? You know, in a genuinely curious way, look at people in the eyes, listen, nod, like you're paying attention. A lot of conversations, people are just nodding, but they're not even listening. They're just waiting for their moment to jump in and make their argument. Uh, you know, that's not conducive to good argument, to good um, conversation. You got to listen to what the other person says and then steel man their position instead of straw manning it where you you re, you convey what you think they're saying in a way that's obviously wrong and you can easily debunk it usually that's not what they believe so if you say let me get let me get let me see if i understand you correctly are you arguing and then you state it in your own words usually they'll go well no not quite here's actually what i'm arguing 
And you go, okay, let me see if I can say it again. And then you say it. And they go, well, yeah, that's close. And then you refine it. You refine it. You know, you'll often find if you don't do that, you're talking at cross purposes. You know, the person says X, you say, well, you're not even talking about the same thing. And there's no point in having a conversation. You know, so that's a super important thing. And leave emotions out of it. You know, don't get all heated up, although it's hard to do on some of these issues. And don't call somebody Hitler. This is actually called, you know, the, instead of ad hominem, you know, ad Hitlerum. You know, the moment you say, well, that's what Hitler would, or that's a Nazi position. You know, the conversation's over. No one's going to listen to you. You just can't do that. Or don't don't say tell somebody their ideas are crazy or delusional. I mean, I've done this. You know, you've lost your mind. Okay, well, the moment when I say that, it's uh, I've lost the the conversation. So you, you have to watch out for that. Some really good insights, and there's there's so much more we could have dug into as well. I, I really like the idea you touched on briefly around this idea of human flourishing being one of the underpinnings of a moral framework that we can use to, to build a, a culture and this concept of being an enlightened humanist. But there's there's so many so many avenues we could continue to explore here. But Michael, I really appreciate you coming on the show, digging into some very thorny issues and sharing your insights. Oh, you're welcome. And thanks for having me on, Matt. I appreciate that. Good conversation. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. <laughs>